Simple Beep, episode 35, Hypercard. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And today we're finally tackling a big one. We're gonna, this is one of the topics that we've been meaning to get to, I think, since basically probably one on our original topic list when we started the show. And it's one of the all-time classic Mac applications, and it is Hypercard. A application for making more applications and doing all kinds of things, which we will get into momentarily. But first, as always, we have a little bit of follow-up. Yep. A couple of items from our previous episode about my dream app. First, it was correct in our show notes, but it was incorrect when I said it in the recording. One of Phil Rue's earlier websites was Widget Machine, not Widget Factory. And also a tweet from listener Tim Merck let us know that the webpage for Disco, the CD burning software. With the 3D smoke effects. <laughs> yes, the particle smoke effects, um, is still live, discoapp.com. And there's actually a universal serial posted on the site. So everyone who downloads it can use it for free. I wonder if it runs in Retina. Oh, that is a great call. <laughs> Get it on my uh, Retina iMac. Uh, all the... Uh, all the uh, accelerated smoke effects that I can handle. <laughs> Except you need an external drive. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> Technology has left it behind. <laughs> One other thing that um, from last episode, towards the end of the episode, we were talking about where developers can basically get funding to work on new and interesting projects or projects that there seems to be some sort of popular demand for. And I was thinking about it saying that, oh, developers kind of have to just go out on their own and speculate for ideas. And then I, I was like, wait, but there's one other way that they could do it. And I just couldn't come up with it. It was on the tip of my tongue. I went, oh, after we finished recording the show, I went, of course, it's Kickstarter. And, you know, that's a different type of speculation, I think, because there's a lot of vaporware on Kickstarter as well. And it's just a question of who's putting up uh who's putting up that interest and time and money up front to try to get some project off the ground. And there have been a lot of, there have been a lot of software projects that have been developed on Kickstarter, some successfully and some that we're still kind of waiting on. Have you supported any iOS apps in particular on Kickstarter? No, I have not. And I don't even know how it would work for an iOS app. That's just what I was going to ask. Yeah. That's one of the things that's a limiting factor for Kickstarter for app development on iOS, I mean, you can have any kind of perks that you want for the for pledging towards the project, but one of them is probably not going to be a copy of the app unless you're doing, I don't even know how you would be able to do it. I mean, you could give out like iTunes gift cards <laughs> um, if it was expensive enough, but that would still be like pretty labor intensive to do. And I know that developers get a certain number of codes, redeem codes that can go specifically towards their app, but I think it's capped at a pretty low number. So I guess you could do like an, maybe like an early bird kind of limited one, but the whole point of backing an app is to actually get the app in the end. <laughs> and, and if you need backing to make the project happen, like one or 200 people backing your app is not going to bankroll your whole development. Yeah. So it's more limited to Mac apps uh, web apps and and other desktop type apps. I've backed a couple of backed a couple of games, 
Um, there's one that's still ongoing, of course, you know, that never, never quite arrives, um, called Eco, which is like a world simulator where, uh, there's a meteor heading for the world and you can basically, they want to create a simulation for everything from like farming to legal system to everything. They keep sending me email updates every once in a while. We'll see if it ever actually launches. (laughs) But yeah, so one of the reasons that we decided that this episode would be a good time to talk about HyperCard is because last episode we were talking about this notion of a flexible way of developing software and for just the ordinary person to get their idea for a piece of software to be a reality. So this is another thing. As soon as we hung up from recording last time, we thought, well, wait, there there was something like this. There's There's not a whole lot of options out there right now we'll get to that eventually but there was a time where on the mac there was definitely a robust tool for making either small or large apps of your own and that was hypercard so we're going to go into the history a little bit here in a second um i've done as much research as i can on this and i have one particular reference that i've been using which is the complete hypercard 2.0 handbook which I think I picked up used at a like library book sale or something a long time ago, published in 1990, um, right, right when HyperCard 2.0 came out. And this thing is pretty monster. It's uh, 892 pages <laughs> with small font. Um, and uh, there, this was one of an entire series of books, actually, that were on HyperCard. Uh, one of them that you may have seen made the rounds on the internet recently is a book called HyperTalk 2.0, the book. And it's by the two guys who did, uh, who created the programming language HyperTalk and some of the documentation for it. And they're, <laughs> the cover of this book, the cover of my book is kind of boring. It's like a hand and then futuristic cards in a stack, which makes sense for HyperCard. The cover of HyperTalk 2.0, the book, is the two guys who wrote the book in fantastic tuxedos. <laughs> There's also a companion book called Cooking with HyperTalk 2.0, and it's the same two guys, and they are in the world's most stereotypical chef outfits. It's fantastic. (laughs) We'll put links to both of those in the notes. (laughs) Yeah, uh, let's start with a little bit of a history lesson for HyperCard. The application came from Bill Atkinson, who was a member of the original Macintosh team and is also responsible for lots of other things that we know, love, and cherish today about the Mac, maybe most notably the Mac Paint uh, drawing program. Bill Atkinson is such a legendary figure in the original Macintosh team and the kind of early classic Macintosh lore that he has his own Susan Kerr 32 by 32 black and white Fat Bits icon. Uh, I think a lot of people are familiar with her Steve Jobs 32 by 32 icon, but uh, Bill is important enough to have warranted his own as well. Yeah, so Bill Atkinson's first big software project, as you said, was Mac Paint. I think he also created the uh, the Fat Bits editor that the icons were being developed in, and Fat Bits shows up uh, in in HyperCard. And as we'll see, HyperCard had some really robust graphics tools for for its time that went on beyond what he was able to do in Mac Paint, and so. We're going to go through a lot of the things of what is HyperCard 
But I think that one of the best places to go for this is an interview with Bill Atkinson himself, which is in the appendix to to this book that I have. And it's kind of interesting because, as you'll see, there are a couple parts of this that are these timeless aspects that got us thinking about this topic in the first place. And then at the end, uh, something that very much puts it in its historical technological context. So Atkinson's description of his own brainchild is... HyperCard is an authoring tool and an information organizer. You can use it to create stacks of information to share with other people or to read stacks of information made by other people. And he goes on to say, so it's both an authoring tool and a sort of cassette player for information. So that gives you an idea of the metaphor that what he was using to think of the exchange of information here. And But the main metaphor that's in there is the, the stack. Um, and that's the real world metaphor that everything deals with in HyperCard is that pretend that you have a stack like of index cards or just sheets of paper and they each have their own content. That content can be manipulated in certain ways and you can move between the various stacks, either in order, randomly search it, etc. Another early inspiration that he cited in this interview that I thought was particularly interesting, it's really interesting, you know, this is some of the earlier history of Apple, some of the some of the earliest history of Apple that we've gotten into that's really well documented and has these primary interviews and stuff like that. And it's interesting to see just especially with Bill Atkinson how ambitiously he was thinking in terms of the types of software that he envisioned that the Mac could be or that Apple could create in 1987. So another early inspiration he cites is a project that was apparently going on within Apple that was called Magic Slate. And the vision for this was, remember, in 1987, a laptop computer that had a full-page display and an all-graphical interface and maybe I'm just colored by 35 years of additional Apple history, but it sounded like even back then they were kind of trying to envision the iPad, which is pretty remarkable. <laughs> but going back to HyperCard, Bill Atkinson began working on it in March of 1985. And the first name of the project was actually WildCard. And a little bit of that still exists, well, I'd say to this day, but... Throughout the, the life of the software, certainly, its creator code remained wild in all caps. After um, HyperTalk language came into the picture, and uh, according to Wikipedia, for some trademark reasons, Bill changed from Wildcard to HyperCard. Yeah, I think it was a good name switch. Wildcard is, you know, it's a pun, and it, it, but it doesn't really explain what the software does. And even even at this early time in the Mac's history, people were starting to talk about hypertext, even pre-web. There was the notion of hypertext, which was not just plain text, but dynamic because it was linked in various ways or searchable in various ways. And that's at the heart of what HyperCard is able to do. It's not just hypertext, it's, it's visual as well. Another interesting piece uh, about HyperCard is that it almost didn't become an Apple product. So Atkinson was an original member of the Mac development team, but he was kind of, he says, not quite in just a plain contractor role with Apple, but he wasn't in a 
regular full-time on-campus job with Apple at this point. And of course, the CEO, famous CEO switch had happened and uh, Scully was in charge of Apple at this time. And he was having lots of lots of interactions and negotiations directly with Scully and, and other people at Apple. Um, and so as he kind of took a leave to work on HyperCard, which was his main project at the time, and like we said, kind of an extension of a combination of what he was able to do with Mac Paint, an extension of those tools, plus some of his vision for what programming should be like. And legally, Apple had the first rights to HyperCard. So they had the option to own the software as their own as Atkinson developed and finished it. But there was an agreement that they would bundle it with all the Macs as basically part of the system software. And if at any point they decided that they weren't going to do that, uh, the rights would revert to Atkinson. And he said that if they got to the point where the product was finished and Apple wasn't willing to ship it for free with every Mac, that uh, he was going to take it and distribute it for free himself. Which, I mean, you know, bundled with every Mac, you're still making some money off of the software. But that's kind of a bold move to just say, I'm going to go indie in 1985 and distribute free software that I think is going to change the world. Uh, so he definitely had a bold vision for this. And one of the things that he said is that he wanted to ensure that HyperCard as a project was, quote, not going to be abandoned like Mac Paint was. Uh, so he he felt like he had been a little bit burned already, I guess. So Mac Paint development had clearly slowed down at this point, and it was also changed from being bundled software to paid separate software. And Mac Paint uh, only lasted until 1988, so just four years. Whereas HyperCard did get uh, didn't get abandoned nearly so quickly because it lasted until 1998. The last version was 2.4.1, and that means that it had a lifespan of 12 or 13 years of active development and continued on uh, at least until the end of the classic Mac era. Yeah, we briefly touched on some of HyperCard's history because it switched from Apple's uh, primary rights ownership to when uh, Apple spun off a lot of its software development under Claris and HyperCard was included in that transfer. Again, we covered that part of HyperCard's history in our episode on Claris and Claris Works, episode 25. Uh, so we won't get into it here, but if you'd like to go back, that's the one to look for. Yeah. And one of the other things that was a major uh, break in the history of HyperCard was that it was planned as this authoring environment uh, where basically any software could be created within uh, HyperCard. And when I say any software, I don't, <laughs> I'm not really exaggerating very much here, as we'll see. I mean, there was a basic, there was a basic structure of the stack that you had to follow, but beyond that, the sky was the limit. Um, and I think some modern developers even have compared this to basically being just like a development environment, if you were willing to take it to that, to that level. Um, but one of the things that was put in place uh, regarding this was that there were certain levels of use or permissions within the software itself. There were five levels of use that ranged from browsing all the way up to scripting. Level one was browsing. Level two was typing. You could enter 
text into fields on the cards. Level three was painting. You unlock the graphical uh, creation tools. Level four was the author level, and level five unlocked full scripting. Like I said, there was a there's a little bit of a break in the history of HyperCard, where originally HyperCard came with all five of those levels, and you could freely go from one to the other. Or I think that you know if you had a stack that was distributed by someone as a piece of software, um, that stack could be locked down to a certain level. Um, so if you had a, if you had some piece of software, it would you wouldn't be able to just necessarily go in and change all the scripts on it. Um, but the the big change was when Apple decided that yes, they would still sort of bundle HyperCard with the system software, but it was a rich enough piece of software that they wanted to charge for it separately. And this was the birth of HyperCard Player. And HyperCard Player was locked to, I think, at most the third level, which was painting. And so that meant that you could have some interaction with the contents of cards, but you couldn't you couldn't create new stacks. You couldn't do any of the authoring or scripting level tasks. But but there was a workaround because HyperCard Player was not really uh, was not really any much different than the HyperCard software itself, especially because again this was at the time where software had to be extremely efficient to fit on floppy disks, and even more so to fit on floppy disks with room for the files that you were going to create with it still there. Um, so, uh, in this original interview, Atkinson was talking about in Mac paint, I think he had like 25 K, which is just bonkers to me, (laughs) um, to get all of that, all of those paint tools in there. Um, and that he had this like wide world a couple of years later where hypercard and it was more advanced hypercard took like 250 K. So there's the 250 K player and it's got everything that, the 250k authoring suite has it's just locked down but if you entered the secret code which was magic uh, you would be able to unlock the the full version and that's certainly how i ever got well i guess in uh school computer labs they probably had a fully licensed educational version but on home computer it was always a little bit of magic <laughs> one final thing is that um those those five levels of of editing permissions were there from version one all the way on. And Atkinson said that thinking about adding significant new features in 2.0, he said, we almost added level six and they thought that they were going to call it hacking. (laughs) And it sounded like um, what he was going for here was that there were certain types of objects in HyperCard. And that's what we're going to get into now. But there were things like stacks, cards, buttons, fields, all of these different ways of representing objects and and data within the within a stack that you created or within an application that was a stack. And he said that if we added this sixth level hacking, we were going to allow people to uh, define their own objects or define their own object classes. And so he was basically saying, yeah, we kind of wanted to make HyperCard 2.0 a full object-oriented developer environment. <laughs> um, but it didn't quite go that far. But nevertheless, there was still a lot that could be done with all of these other types of objects that were in HyperCard stacks. So let's start with the basic one, which is a card. Yeah. So a card would be like the single screen that you could see at any one time while interacting with a HyperCard stack. And I put this in the show notes at the top of our section about cards 
because I had completely forgotten about it and accidentally triggered it when I was researching for this episode. But if you hit Command R while in HyperCard, or I guess the HyperCard player, a a, like a floating dialog box window would show up with little thumbnails of maybe like the 50 most recent individual cards you had used or seen in your HyperCard session. Oh yeah, R for recent. Yeah, Uh, and it really took me by surprise. Um, so that was just a fun little thing I wanted to get in there. If, if you're trying to think of modern analogs for what, what these cards were like, I mean, in some respect, in terms of software that you can edit things in now, it's more like, like slides in a presentation. So like PowerPoint or keynote. Um, but in those, everything's pretty linear. Like you start at the beginning of a slide presentation and you go all the way to the end and you could build something like that in HyperCard, no problem. But it didn't have to be that way. There could be lots of nonlinear movement. So every card had a number, and you could refer to those numbers. You could say, go to card five. And it would do that. But it was not the case that when you created a stack, you went from card one, two, three, four, five, and then you were done. You could go from one to five to two, etc. And then you would be able to see where where you went at any given time and, and navigate uh, that way, and a lot of a lot of the more advanced tricks that you could pull with with HyperCard involved doing clever things with with navigating from one card to another in those nonlinear fashions. Also, unlike uh, unlike a modern slide presentation that's linear, um, if you're not moving around in just click to the next, click to the next, you had to have a way of doing that, and so. HyperCard let you put buttons on your cards. So th- there were lots of options for for buttons, and they were used for navigation, they were used for computation, they were used for triggering graphic events or sound events, all kinds of things that you could put on a card. And uh, you would just drag out a new new button, and it would look by default like a regular dialog box button in uh, in the system software, just the rounded rectangle that would invert color when you clicked on it. You could set any name for that button that you wanted, and then you could get info on the button, and a whole host of options were opened up. Um, So there were four main things that you could do in the info window for buttons. You could select an icon, so you could have either a picture or a picture in text or just text on the icon. You could have an effect that would happen when you clicked the button. And most importantly, probably what you were going to the most was a link to attribute. So you could say, when I click this button, I want to go to a certain card. So if you had a card with an index and you named the button index and you put a little index icon on it, and then you could say link to the the card called index. And finally, the last thing that you could do is you could view the script for that button. And you could write a script yourself by hand, or some of these other GUI features of the application would construct a little bit of script for you. So, for example, if you went in and made a link to attribute and then also a visual effect attribute and then opened up the script, you could actually see what was being made for you and start to learn the the language of HyperCard uh, that way because you would see something like, it would say visual effect wipe left 
go-to card index. And uh, all of that would be wrapped up in a famous little bit of syntax that I think is the first two words that you need to know when you start writing writing scripts for HyperCard. And that is on mouse up. Mouse up being camel cased. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you made a button in HyperCard and went straight to editing its script, this would be there for you. A little bit of a, basically like a function on mouse up, a space below it, uh, indented, ready for you to start typing your HyperTalk code, and then end mouse up, closing the function. And this is when the literally the mouse button, uh, the button has been clicked on, and it's when the click is released. Because they also had on mouse down, which is like if you click and hold, there was even like on mouse still down. There are all kinds of uh, interface events. Mouse enter and mouse leave. Uh, but mouse up was by far... The, the, like Ed said, like you probably saw these two words so many times. And the explanation for it makes complete sense. And again, goes to just how interesting and ambitious the goals of HyperCard were and, and Atkinson's vision of it as a piece of system software. So he says, he said that when, if you've used a Mac, you know that things actually happen in dialog boxes when you release the button when you release the mouse button uh, when clicking on an on-screen button. And that if you click down and you go, oh, not that, and move the mouse off of the button, if it's well-behaved, if it's a real Mac interface element, it's not going to do that thing. And so that's clearly the default, is that if people are creating buttons, they want them to behave like ordinary Mac buttons. If they're performing a single action, that should happen on mouse up. But he called the HyperTalk interface a superset of the Macintosh interface. In other words, saying you can do everything that you could in the basic Mac interface, Windows, dialog boxes, etc. Create these button interfaces and, and user interfaces. And by default, they're going to work in a Mac-like fashion. But you can go on beyond that because you might want to have some sort of effect. You might want to have something happen while you're holding the button down. Um, and, but of course, if you're, if you're a good designer and good developer, if you have a button that does something while it's being pressed down, you want to indicate that visually. You want to make sure that that button doesn't look like just a standard Mac button. And it also gave you the tools to do that. You could have a perfectly square button with just an icon. And then maybe that's not so surprising that when you hold that button down, something happens, not when it just when it's released. And we mentioned that you could put uh, icons on these, and, and since this was an Atkinson project, you could do custom icons. It was just the basic Fat Bits icon editor. One thing that we should probably mention is the fact that for its entire life, all the way up to 1998, by, by default, uh, HyperCard was a purely black and white software program, not even grayscale, no color. There were add-ons that could possibly get you uh, working with color, but by default, it was 100% black and white, uh, and that was all you got, but there was really still quite a lot there. Yeah. Uh, why don't we go to the, the drawing tools since we're talking about the fat bits? The drawing tools in, in HyperCard are really pretty interesting. It has everything that MacPaint had and more, and I had forgotten a little bit how how rich they were. There was it, there was a tool palette of 
painting tools that would be like you would expect in pretty much any bitmap drawing, bitmap painting application. But pretty much every tool in the palette had some kind of trick up its sleeve. Um, and lots of these were done through modifier keys. So option, shift, command. And there were some really interesting features that could get you effects that weren't possible in basically any other Mac apps that I knew of, even even several years into HyperCard's life. So for for one, there was a uh, a regular polygon tool, which I guess you know many drawing or painting applications then had, and you could click on it and say I want uh, specify the number of sides. You say six, and you get a hexagon. Um, and you could draw out a single hexagon from corner to corner, or you could hold option and draw it from the center, or you could turn on a mode called draw multiple shapes. And when you did this, basically just I don't I don't know exactly what the uh, what the interval was, but basically as you moved the mouse, it would just keep creating shapes. And so, for example, if you took a rectangle and dragged from one corner to another, you would get all of these rectangles that all met at one point up in the corner. Um, or if you did it by holding option, like if, if you held option shift, you would get squares, you know, 20 squares that were all centered within each other just very quickly. So there were all these kind of interesting little paint tools in there. And then another thing that took this beyond basic painting applications so if you were using Mac Paint or if you were using paint documents in Clarisworks or Appleworks, you had your set of tools and you had the bitmap canvas and you got one, one undo. And after that, everything was just locked down. There were pixels and you were just changing what the color was at a given coordinate. But in HyperCard, because there were all these other objects on cards everything went in its own layer. And I didn't really think of this until I was going back and playing with it a little bit, is that you can have multiple layers of painting. So you can have multiple paint objects overlaying each other, and you can do some interesting things with them. And so one of them is that you could do, um, if you had bitmap graphics that you were importing that were, you know, more more photorealistic, let's say more, because there's still, you know, one bit uh, color depth. Um, but if you had some bitmap, gra- bitmap graphics, then you could do interesting things like basic shape masking by basic by just drawing another paint shape over it. And you're like, oh, oh my gosh, you destroyed it. Like you've, <laughs> you've drawn a black, black oval over it. And now it's gone. If you, if you do something one more step, you know, you won't be able to undo and it'll be gone. But no, they were in different layers. And, and there was a command, I think it was called pickup that would do this masking. And then you would have a single layer that had, um, had this new composite shape in it. And so just a lot more graphical power than was really possible pretty much anywhere else on the Mac at the time of HyperCard's release. Naturally, things went quickly beyond that. I mean, I, I think that this is around the time that things like Photoshop 1.0 were being developed, and Photoshop quickly developed to versions 2 and 3 and beyond, and had way more graphics power uh, than HyperCard by you know, the mid-90s, the end of HyperCard's life. But again, you're thinking of this is something that uh, its creator is adamant needs to be bundled for free with a Mac. 
Right. And it's something that in retrospect, I'm looking at some of these features and I'm com- I compare them more favorably to Photoshop than I do to Mac Paint mm-hmm. um, just because of the level of advancement that they were at. And yeah, this was supposed to be system software. <laughs> yeah. And you were just mentioning these uh, these layers, like pretty much proto layers. Uh, and I mentioned earlier that cards had backgrounds. So I wanted to to bring that up again here. Um, it wasn't like a layer within the the painting and the drawing that you were doing in essentially the foreground of the card, but it was kind of like a, a template background for the entire stack. And because HyperCard was so extensible, these backgrounds not only were just like a visual appearance that could be repeated, but they were their own object that could carry their own scripts. So you could, you know, like stash your... Uh, uh, stack-wide functions in the script of the background object, you could have repeatable things, Not and again, not just the images, but happen in the background. Um, of course, a lot of the bundled stacks, uh, many of which we'll probably talk about later in this episode that came with HyperCard, used background mostly for uh, visual or like repeatable buttons, like Ed mentioned an index button, or there was often a button to go back to the home HyperCard stack. And a lot of these things would live in the background. And uh, because it was fantastically black and white, a lot of these backgrounds are like marvelous dithered uh, drawings or photographs, like try and replicate a Rolodex um, or, or an index card with lines for writing studying notes on. Um, there are a lot of really good backgrounds as you dig back through the HyperCard archives. Yeah, and that's another important thing that we we didn't mention is that you could attach a script to... I guess it was any layer, and every object got its own layer. So the buttons were really just a special case. You think, oh, you you put a script on a button, that makes sense. That's the one place that scripts go. But no, everything in HyperCard was scriptable down to the background, which doesn't you know that doesn't even make any sense. It's kind of like the non-object, um, but that's where you could put a lot of things, and you could. If you wanted to do something that was more like a linear presentation, uh, like we think of a, a slide deck today where you just click anywhere to proceed, well, fine. You could put a script in the background that just says, on mouse up, go to next card. And then, boom, that that was all you needed to to get from totally freeform blank application playground to... Structured linear presentation is like three lines of script in the background. Yeah. And again, we'll get into HyperTalk later, but like, I think you just literally just said, go to next card. It was English. Yep. That's it. <laughs> or maybe even just go next card. <laughs> yeah. Um, another big object that you could put on cards were text fields. And HyperCard was commonly referred to as as a like a proto database or a place where you could store information. I think like Bill Atkins said it was like a cassette player for information. So having ways to input and store that text was obviously very important. And like we've just been talking about, these text fields themselves could have scripts attached to them. the The text fields themselves could. Uh, perform certain tasks when you clicked on them on mouse up or even on mouse down. If you were uh, like holding down within a text field, maybe that's what made it active. It was completely extensible. Yeah. And just like, just like database applications. Now you could have, uh, you could have actions that were performed on the contents of fields. 
Um, so you could, you could do basic calculations. You, you could you know, multiply quantity times price or something. And because you could then give this stack over to someone in the typing mode where they can't change the, the underlying logic of how it works, but they could enter their own data into the fields and then maybe a calculation will happen automatically. So like, for example, you would put a script on a field itself if every time that you um, entered something, you wanted an action to happen. Or you could have fields and then, you know, have a button that said, you know, you could have six fields that you wanted to put numbers into and then a button that says total, and then it would add them all up and give you give you the result. Um, so it was totally flexible in terms of what you put in, what you got out, and the user experience. And in another flash of kind of anticipating the future, there you never had to manually save. Once you typed information into a text field, maybe it was when the field kind of unfocused, uh, it was just saved. It was saved to the contents of that stack as a file on your computer. You never had to go to file save. So like I said, if you wanted to hand a stack over to someone, just put the stack on a floppy, give it to them, they type, they give you the stack with the floppy back, and it has that information. No one's ever had to go to file and choose save. Yeah, and I think that the way that this worked, gosh, this is this is kind of surprising now that I think of it. Again, the benefit of hindsight is that it, the model worked a lot like a lot like autosave does now from from Lion onward, although not not quite as much because it, in OS ten it's a little bit more aggressive because if you if you go into you know if you open up a file and you hit select all delete then like that's autosaved. Whereas here, we're only talking about the field contents. Mm -hmm. And so if you went in and you started um, deleting fields, adding buttons, um, changing scripts, that itself was not auto-saved. But it was these these lower level on that hierarchy of one to five. That kind of information was basically kept by default. And there was the, the only, and you could undo it one level, or there was a revert to saved command, which was, you know, which is also the way that you kind of have to do things now with, with apps that support autosave. Yeah. Really, really kind of forward looking features. I'm also looking I'm thumbing through the, the paint features here. It had, um, full, full bitmap distort features. I mean, it just went on and on and on with, what it was able to do. And if, uh, if visuals weren't enough for you, <laughs> hypercards and hypertalk more specifically had some really cool, uh, audio commands. It was MIDI support basically. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, and of course later on it could be extended to support QuickTime, but, uh, you could maybe create a button, go into its script and type out play Boeing ABC. And that would play the the system, or I guess it would play the hypercard Boeing sound in three notes, A, B, C. You could specify the notes, you could specify the octave, you could even specify the tempo all in your play command in that line of code. And if your stack had a sound resource that you dropped in maybe through ResEdit, you could specify that sound by its uh, its name and play that sound and pitch shift it as much as you wanted. It was it was really extensible, really cool. Yeah, every uh, every computer lab teacher 
rude the day that they taught their students <laughs> about the sound scripting features in Hyper HyperCard because there were boings just <laughs> nonstop. <laughs> uh, so let's zoom out a little bit now and talk about stacks, the kind of uh, groupings of cards within HyperCard. And the document format for HyperCard itself. Yes, that's important. Each each physical, well, not physical, but each uh, unique file was a HyperCard stack. And the icon for these was also very visually a stack. I was looking at these and thinking, these might be some of the first 3D icons that Apple ever did, because the the icon for HyperCard is this stack of like of, of several cards that are you you can see both you can see all three dimensions of the cards and the way that they are stacked and then there's the standard application hand icon coming a part of the icon coming across them every hypercard installation first opened up to and always came back to the home stack and as apple put it together this was your it was your home kind of like your your home page in the browser or your home directory in OS 10 it had links to all the other stacks. Maybe they were add-on stacks, or maybe they were some of the, the pre-made examples that shipped with HyperCard. And there were cards in the home stack where Apple encouraged you to add links to the stacks that you were creating. And then there were also cards like you could set maybe, I think, your your name for when HyperCard decided to refer to you by name, and the level kind of HyperCard-wide, unless overridden by a specific stack, that you liked to uh use the application in again this one through five browsing to scripting level yeah the home stack is one of those dangerous tools in the hands of of a user because it's a lot like it's a lot like the desktop in the finder it's the default place it's where you start and as happens with many programs that are designed around that type of metaphor that have a default starting home location, people tend to do everything there. <laughs> and you could, because the home stack was a stack like any other, and you were encouraged to edit it. Um, and so you could basically live your whole whole hypercard life, or m- much of it, just within the home stack. But that wasn't going to get you the, the best functionality of, of the program, just like you could put all of your files on the desktop and that's not going to get you the best functionality of the finder, but it's so tempting. I mean, even for me as, as a novice Mac user coming to this, I did dangerous, dumb things like not really understanding the file and folder metaphor. I did things like when I first started using ResEdit and wanted to create new icons instead of making like blank resource files, I started, I started going in (laughs) When you open up ResEdit, it gives you an open dialog box, and the first thing that's selected is the ResEdit application itself. I would just start creating new icons in there. It was dumb. <laughs> Same thing. You could just start going in and start just creating new cards within the home stack. Or scripting the home stack to do crazy things. And because everybody had a home stack, um, anyone with malicious intent could try to modify someone's home stack, knowing that sooner or later, if they ever open up anything in HyperCard, it's going to take them to the home stack and perhaps execute some malicious code there. Yes. Uh, episode four of this very podcast. Gosh, it was that long ago. <laughs> yeah. Covered the Merry Xmas virus that spread through HyperCard home stacks. Yeah. And 
um, we've talked a little bit on how in it in its early phases, HyperCard was seen as part of the system software. I think by the time that we got to HyperCard, it was seen more as just a standalone application. Yeah. But in um, presumably in HyperCard 2.0, uh, the when you first launched HyperCard, it would look for the home stack um, if you just launched the application by itself instead of directly opening a stack in the Finder. And uh, it would look in certain places in order. Number one place it looked for the home stack was in the root level of the system folder. <laughs> Which is crazy. <laughs> Which is bonkers. Um, but th- th- that's that's what it did. Then it would look in uh, the same folder as the stack that you opened, then the same folder as the HyperCard application, then a folder named HyperCard Stacks, uh, and then uh, in the root directory of the volume. And if it couldn't do that, it would say, I don't have a home stack and probably not launch. (laughs) So yeah, the home stack was, you know, it was sitting in there with like the clipboard file. (laughs) It was, it was designed to be helping your computer run. Certainly in version 2.4, which, uh, which I used for most of my, like at the time usage of HyperCard and today going back and researching it. There were a bunch of pre-made stacks included with your HyperCard install, and uh, I think we want to talk about a couple of them now as well. Yeah, I mean, th- these were designed to show you what could be done in HyperCard, but also just to act as supplementary bits of system software in a way. Um, so many of these things are they're things that you could conceive of in early classic Mac as something more like a desk accessory. And today we think of them as just small system apps. Like a perfect example is that the HyperCard shipped with a stack that was an address book. And obviously the way that we deal with data in address books or contacts now (laughs) um, in OS 10 and iOS is different because you have different types of data. Um, You know, you have email addresses and, and the like, uh, and photos for every contact if you're if you're magic and from Apple. <laughs> so it's a different approach, but it's the same basic task and something that's still seen as part of the system software. Like you said, though, Brian, it, you know the, the aesthetics were a little bit different. Um, trying to be with the, I guess they were a little bit skeuomorphic. Yes, <laughs> um, with you know, if you have an address book, you want it to look like the type of address book that someone might keep on their desk or a Rolodex or something like that. Um, And to give people the impression that they're entering data on cards and then that those cards were better than the cards that you could keep on your physical desk because you could search them and you could do other kinds of, you know, you could, you could manipulate the data in different ways. This is how it kind of gets a little bit more like a database as opposed to just a plain stack of paper. Um, so this was a good example of how that worked. The stack that I remembered visiting a lot back in the 90s and that I jumped to when I started researching for this episode was a stack called ArtBits. It was basically clip art distributed in a stack. And they're wonderful little cartoons from, I don't know who at Apple, like, Part of me hopes that Susan Kerr had a hand in it, but probably not. And uh, there is one card from the stack that I took a screenshot of 
Um, it's from the odds and ends category, and it's got a couple of like cool icons of appliances or uh, people, letters. And then there's some, there's <laughs> one thing that does not fit in on this card. And it's a, <laughs> I just opened it. It's a little cartoon of a like classic Mac or Mac SE with little arms raised up like hands up, don't shoot. And there's a policeman who's holding its mouse and pointing a gun at it. And he's got like a little evil grin on it. I do not know what's happening there. Yeah. What is happening? I don't know. But uh, in a lot of the stacks that I made, I would uh, use my little lasso tool and copy that and just put it in there because it made me laugh every time. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's a good one. (laughs) So, yeah, another perfect example of something that you would um, you would distribute via hypercard stack. Also, because um, because hypercard stacks in order to run at all. on early max um used some kind of proprietary bitmap uh compression that that was developed by Bill Atkinson and team um just because they weren't going to be able to run the multiple layers uh and keep everything in ram if if they didn't if they didn't crunch everything down so if you had black and white clip art uh distributing it as a hypercard stack would probably be one of the most efficient ways of doing that and yeah, I'm just looking at that clip art again. <laughs> and one of the interesting things is the way that it's organized is that um, there's all these images across the page, but then up in the top, it just there's just a list of everything on that page. It just says icon, box, television, toaster, oven, blender, coffee maker, police, yeah. <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. The notion being that you could, because you had stack-wide search, you could just search for the name of the thing that you wanted and be taken immediately to it. So we've made it this far. Should we actually talk about uh, about programming in HyperCard and the HyperTalk language? I know that this is my introduction to programming, and I would guess it's the same for you. I would think so. Um, I think that maybe, maybe I had written like ten lines of Apple Basic um, in elementary school before I got to HyperCard, um, and. This is as good a time as any to to mention a really ridiculous resource that I think needs to go along with with this episode, which is called um, The Origin of Hypercard in the Breakdown of the Bicycle for the Mind. Yes. <laughs> which is this post that went on Medium uh, towards the end of last year. And it's a fake talk about Hypercard in an alternate timeline. <laughs> I mean, like the banner image across the top should give it away. I got halfway through the article before I realized how many references there were. Same. I guess we spoiled it. Sorry guys. It's still hilarious. Yeah, it's really good. And the 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 like second slide in the the transcript of this talk says my first program 10 print butts 20 go to 10. That was about the level that I got to <laughs> before before hypercard. So it's absolutely spot on. That's that's where most people started and then hypercard was step 2. Yeah, so HyperTalk, the language of HyperCard. Uh, Bill Atkinson was primarily the developer of the application, and uh, one of the two finely dressed authors of the books I talked about at the beginning <laughs> is the main creator of the HyperTalk language, Dan Winkler, and uh, Wikipedia says he created it in 1987. So there were a couple of main influences for HyperTalk, and one of them was the Smalltalk language, which was developed at Xerox Park, 
And so there's plenty of ties between between Apple and Xerox in terms of graphing interface and here also the the combination of graphic interface and and programming. Um and it's also heavily influenced uh by just plain English syntax, which is what it's supposed to look like. And when you look at a hypertalk piece of hypertalk code, it does not look like any programming language that I know except for one other. And it makes a lot of sense. The only other programming language that it looks even a little bit like is AppleScript. And the fact is that it's kind of a predecessor to AppleScript. Uh, AppleScript was first released in 1993, and HyperTalk preceded it by six years. The goal of having HyperTalk be a part of HyperCard was to have these various features accessible to users and for it to be, quote, a humane starting language for people who are learning to program. And like I said earlier, you could you could generate little predictable snippets of HyperTalk code through the GUI features of HyperCard and then at any point go in and see what you had created. So you knew that there were these little recipes that that you could follow and then you could start going and start playing with the, the elements themselves. And one of the ways that HyperTalk really shown as being a humane starting language for me was that it had kind of a super variable called it. Yeah, just like English has pronouns, HyperTalk also has pronouns that aren't like variable names. You know, it's weird in English to say, put the book on the table, open the book, read the book, do the book, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, if you keep repeating the same, you know, like a variable name, like the name of an object over and over again, it's weird. You say, get the book, put it on the table, move it over there, et cetera. And uh, so in, in regards to the super variable it, a lot of the early programming I did in HyperTalk was basically get commands and put commands. Get the value of field A, put it, into field B. That's like legitimate hypertalk, what I just said, which reads as plain English. And another thing about hypertalk, to use Ed's example, um, we don't declare that the table is like a piece of furniture first, right? We just say the table. And similarly, you don't have to declare your variables, whether uh, like locally or globally within functions. You can just say like, Put get the value of field A, put it into holding tank. And then a couple lines down, put holding tank into field B. You don't have to declare that holding tank is a string, holding tank is an integer, like with so many other languages. Yeah, and you, you had the option to to use things that are more traditional programming type operators. Um, but the general way that you stored and retrieved information was not with equals. It was it was with these commands get and put, which I believe are still, th- those are present still in, in AppleScript. Some of the other natural language things that wound up in HyperTalk are, well, what I as a linguist would call determiners. Um, <laughs> but things like any or last or first and so if you if you wanted to have a button that um 
say, took you to a random card. I don't know why you would want to do that. But you could have a button where the command is go to any card. And it would just it would just pick one. And I know that that's still around in in Apple script. I have a couple of I have a couple of text expander snippets to this day that run an embedded Apple script where you want to generate um one of like a random entry from a particular list that you have. And so in that in that list, um you, you just put that list in in Apple script and then you say, um it's like return some blah. <laughs> And it's just like, okay, I'll pick one. Uh, something cool about HyperTalk that kind of builds on that. Uh, I found a link just Googling around of a tutorial for HyperCard and HyperTalk that makes you build a calculator using buttons and scripting. And the first, the initial steps are just make a bunch of buttons and name them like zero, one, two, three, uh, plus, minus, asterisk, slash for divide. And the script in each of those buttons is something that's just like, put the name of me into field LCD. Oh yeah, there was me as a as a pronoun as well. And so like the only code that really ever happens is the equals button, which is something like, uh, like run the sum value of field LCD. But everything else is just like, my name is one, put one at the end. Oh yeah, and the other thing is like at the end of the line, that's what made, you made me think of at the end of the field LCD. It's it's all like natural language and it all works. Yeah, it it introduced me to a lot of basic programming concepts. Obviously, it doesn't doesn't do me a whole lot for writing a Ruby script today or JavaScript or anything like that. But it did have, um, you know, it, it did have these basic programming concepts. Like, you know, everything is done in. Um, in, in these blocks where you say on this and this, and then there were basic, uh, all of the basic control structures that you would expect in a full fledged scripting or programming language, uh, like conditional logic and loops and those sorts of things. Now that I'm remembering this, the way that you could ju- just the things that you could do by having a script embedded on an object. So for example, if you wanted to have like a toggle button, and you know, you click the button and an animation starts. Click the button again and the animation stops. You could do that by, you know, you need to have some variable for is the animation playing? Well, where do you store that variable? It's not like you have some master script that's running the entire card. No, you can just put that variable in the button. Like the button is what needs to know about that variable. So you have something like, if the animation is playing on mouse up, turn it off. If the animation is not playing on mouse up, do this other thing. And, and that was, you know, basic pseudocode, but the real syntax would not be very far off. Uh, one other thing that was interesting about uh, HyperTalk and the way that it interfaced with, with the objects and the things that appeared on screen in HyperCard stacks was something called the message box. And the message box is interesting. It's kind of like a quasi command line interface and also like kind of a very old school like um like ticker tape output. And so in the message box with its limitation was it was one line and it was input and output. So you could type something into the message box 
and if you hit if you hit enter it was run as a command just at wherever you happened to be in the stack or you could also send information to the message box it was like a special field that you could put something in the message box and it makes me think a lot of um i don't know if you have you ever do you write any much ruby i have taken ruby tutorials okay that's all you need to know so so there's there's a thing in 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 ruby circles some people are quote puts debuggers right because you're trying to figure out what's going on and so the command in in ruby and i had not put this together is that if you want to just print something with a new line the command in ruby is puts string which makes almost no sense except here you can put something into the message box and it's an output of that same sort um so there were lots of official debugging tools in hypercard which is very interesting that it, it was a developer environment to that level but one of the things that you could do as part of a script is you could just say put something in the message box um and then you would get that that feedback the message box was turned off by default you know when you opened a stack and so many people probably never knew that it even existed they figured that whatever was in the window that showed the card that was everything there was a lot more of you know, windows and palettes and stuff that you could open up in in hypercard especially if you were in those higher level authoring and scripting modes we mentioned earlier that on mouse up are two words that especially if you see in like 9 point geneva that takes you back to writing in hypertalk there is another thing uh which was the option return character which is like a just a like an l an uppercase l rotated a I don't know, 270 degrees. Um, and that was if you wanted a single line of code that needed to wrap onto like two lines within the script text editor, you inserted this funky little character, the option return, so that it would interpret those lines as one continuous line and one continuous command. Um, because I was sloppy <laughs> with my code, almost absolutely, uh, I had a lot of code lines that would run uh, beyond like one line length of text on the 640 pixel wide display of my Mac 2. And so uh, seeing this character, I don't think I've ever seen it used anywhere else in computing, just in HyperTalk. Yeah, I've seen it to mean, uh, to mean return in, in some, other, some other places, but uh, only on the Mac. Um, and it's interesting that it had that specific use there and that there was no soft wrap. Um, you could also put, you know, it, it was a scripting language. You also needed to have comments. Um, and the way to create a comment was just two hyphens at the beginning of a line. Very simple. I think it could also split a line, um, for inline comments. One other thing that HyperTalk taught me was how to measure time in ticks. So anything that you were doing that involved timing of any sort, visual effects, playing that MIDI music or, pretty much anything else that was timed within your scripts, everything was done in ticks, not in seconds. And a tick is a 60th of a second, which is an interesting unit of measure. Um, kind of makes sense that it's a unit of measure, but it's not one that we usually think of. And so um, if you were doing anything in HyperTalk and you knew that you wanted a delay of half a second, you knew that you would have to put in something like wait 30 ticks. Were displays, like the old CRT displays, were they 60 hertz? You think it could have had something to do with that? 
Many of them were. So yeah, it could have been kind of a direct, direct graphics driver thing. Um, but I'm not sure exactly, exactly what the reason for timing things that way was. Going back to like the structure of HyperCard being cards within stacks and thinking about real world applications, like a stack of index cards for memorizing a Rolodex full of cards. Another thing you could do is make a flip book where each card in your HyperCard stack was a frame of animation. And I did a whole bunch of these. And like the only script would be a button on the first one that would be like, uh, go to next card, wait 35, go to next card, wait 35. Or even like when I got smarter in a repeat loop. Um, and, and you had to get a timing down. I had to get my timing down of like, what feels like natural animation? Uh, is it half a second? Is it a little ha- less or more than half a second? I definitely remember wrestling with ticks. And if you wanted to get really advanced, you could do, um, you could do almost like sprite animation because you could put, you could animate different objects, especially buttons, and you could have them all instead of going from card to card to card, just like like a plain analog flipbook. You could have all kinds of motion and animation happening within a single card. Um, maybe we should go on to things that we created in HyperCard, some of our favorites. And I know that one of the ones that I created, I didn't realize that it came from this book, but apparently it did. Is uh, there was a there were these icons that I think came with, you know, in the home stack or one of the included stacks. They were four frames of animation. That was it <laughs> of, uh, of a little guy juggling. And uh, in the book, there was a script for uh, how to get this as a button and then, you know, on, on click begin the animation and have the little guy juggle. Um, and then you could change the script to have him juggle and dance, like move across the screen. And I modified that script like endlessly as source of entertainment, (laughs) (laughs) probably some of the most complicated hyper talk that I ever wrote. Um, anything else is kind of lost to the ages. Um, but I think you created a lot, a much greater variety of things in HyperCard than I did. Yeah, uh, you actually reminded me of something I forgot I made. We A map of our fifth and sixth grade school. Uh, I like the way that you described it to you. like, you were one of the people that was identified as being good with computers. <laughs> <laughs> so I got to like spend after school time with uh, the lady who ran our computer lab. And one of her projects was to make a HyperCard stack that was kind of a, a map of the school but also augmented with uh, high-fidelity photos taken from the school's Apple Quick Take 100. This was about the time that I joined the project. <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, we had a Quick Take 100 and a tripod. And we were QuickTime VR was brand new technology. And we tried to go to like the more interesting parts of the school and set up the tripod with a protractor and measure... Because all you had was the viewfinder, analog viewfinder, and try to measure out so that we could get a series of still images to manually stitch into a QuickTime VR panorama. And as I recall, it never worked. <laughs> On my own, I, I spent a lot of time in HyperCard. And uh, once Mist came out, I probably spent like a solid two years of like after school free time trying to make my own mist like games. 
because Mist itself was made in HyperCard, and uh, the the mechanic was very easy. Like I would just map out the world on a piece of paper and just draw like how you would get from point A to point B, and uh, and then like for each waypoint, I would draw four cards: one like one looking north, one looking east, one looking west, one looking south. And the programming was very easy. Like if you click in like the top third of the the card, you go to like the waypoint that's facing north. Or if you click on like the right third, uh, it goes to the card that would be like you panned east. Same for panning west or south is like take a step back. And super easy if you named the cards well. You know, if it's like dungeon, dungeon view north, dungeon view right, or dungeon view east, dungeon view west. And then all you have to do is just select those names. Yeah, yeah. And then um, once I started being more than like an exercise of walking around an environment and actually trying to write a story, which I wish I could recall some of the like plot lines I tried to make for these games, but I would convey them actually through the message box. Um, I would have the game kind of like read stories one line at a time to the player at specific plot points in the game. And it, it again was like, put line one of story into message box, wait two seconds, put another line into message box, wait two seconds. But that's how dialogue was done in video games for f- forever. And still to this day, I mean, you were doing it right in one sense. Yeah, but it was goofy uh, recalling that like it was in the message box, which I think was, well, I guess, yeah. I was using it right. I think you could show it by script as well. So you could make sure that the first time one of those messages appears, it would actually show up. Um, Another game I remember thinking I was like so clever for coming (laughs) up with was a bunch of cards that I just like messed around with the paint tools and created a couple buttons using the like the invisible button style, which would still be like a square, but there's no graphic element to them. And uh, so I would just like make some gross (laughs) one bit dithered masterpiece on a card, scatter a bunch of randomly sized quote, invisible buttons. And then the programming logic would be like, pick a button at random. Like if there are five buttons, pick a random number of one to five, make that the button and then uh, toggle the buttons highlight, which would be like on mouse down, invert the colors of the button is kind of like something that's built in or an option in the GUI for editing buttons and uh, like kind of alternate this highlight state somewhere randomly on the card for random sized square. And then if the user clicks the button, they win that level and they move on to the next one. And I remember thinking like, that's a really smart mechanic. Like I I came up with that. It was pretty smart for like a, a kind of spot the differences type game. And I remember the last level was I just filled the card with the like gray white pixel checkerboard, which works out to gray. And then uh, the, any, wherever the, the like invert buttons were, was almost imperceptible because it was at a pixel level, just like white and gray for randomly sized shapes. So I could never, I could never beat my own final level of that game. (laughs) And I even knew where the buttons were. It was like, there's a one chance out of five. If it's in this place that I remember dropping one still never won. It's like you you wonder if the uh the where's Waldo guy ever loses Waldo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um and uh I did a bunch of stuff with Hypercard. Uh Ed and I we actually collaborated on some 
some projects that uh, didn't use HyperCard per se, but spiritual successors? Yeah, so I think that I don't have a whole lot of HyperCard stacks left around, even though I know that I used HyperCard for for some things, and, and including just playing around in it. But I kind of moved on quickly to some other tools that had some of similar features, but were were not quite the same. Um, one of them that I know that I used for some school projects and apparently still exists to this day um, is something called Micro Worlds. And you had asked before, Brian, was, was HyperTalk my first programming? And this is another one, might have been around the same time. Micro Worlds is kind of a combination of HyperCard-like interface where you could add buttons and and graphics to to individual screens but instead of hyper talk as the underlying language it uses logo oh okay which i first used on apple II and is famous for its little turtle uh, that you could draw things with and then program uh the turtle to do things or once you realized that you could go in and start editing the program for the turtle instead of just typing in single commands, you realize that this is just a programming language and that t- turtle is useless. <laughs> um, so I, I, I still have some, I have something that uh, I put together there and it's like, it, it is, it's like a stack with several different like demo applications of graphics and, and stuff in this app called micro worlds. I also did a school project um, for it, I believe for the math fair, because we were nerds. <laughs> um, then also around that same time, um, I guess this is towards the end of the hypercard era. Apple came out with a separate piece of software called Apple media tool. And it's, it's really only a spiritual successor to hypercard in the sense that you have, linked screens with interactive elements. Um, but it's full color, uh, has no trace of hypertalk whatsoever, um, and a very different model for for creating and linking things together. Um, but I know that I put together a, a portfolio project for science class. Uh, Brian and I, we collaborated on a project on ancient Egypt which is very, very sadly lost to time. Oh, it was award-winning. It was award-winning, yeah. Well, okay, we can link to evidence that we won the award for it is still online, but the project is long gone. Um, I'll put that in the show notes. <laughs> gotta brag. You gotta. Um, and then I think after that, um, a lot of the applications that I would use something like HyperTalk for, I realized were more hypertext applications rather than graphical and the fact that it was getting into uh, the mid and late nineties and black and white graphics weren't particularly exciting anymore. And so I think I moved on to things like trying to make little early websites doing hand coded HTML because I was more interested in the hyper talk, not hyper talk, the hypertext aspects of things and uh, linking that I could do with images rather than animating or working with black and white bitmaps. That's this is a good segue for for me because um, I never used Apple's built-in home stack much, but at some point when I had amassed my own collection of like little games and little experiments and animations, I made 
like essentially my own home stack from scratch that was a launching off point that could open all these other ones. And there was nothing special about it, right? You just had to call it home stack and put or home and put it in the right place. Yeah. And so I made the like the first card of my personal home stack just kind of like a little about me. I didn't know if, if I was ever actually going to share this with anybody, but uh, you know, I made what's essentially like a personal website. Um, and like it had a portfolio of all the hypercard stacks I had made. And then I remember in sixth grade, I pestered my dad to get the full retail version of hypercard because or I, we had been moving along and like whatever was bundled with the Mac two, like one dot X something and hypercard two had come out. And at the point it was hypercard 2.4 and it like, it was bundled with color tools and all these other extensions um, that I think we could get into now. And one of them was a third party extension for hypercard called live card. And this was before we had internet at home, but I figured this was going to be what sold my parents on it because live card was a cool extension to hypercard that would uh, like without any work on your part, if you put the live card software somewhere on a server that you controlled that supported CGI scripts uh, and you dropped your stacks into the same directory, your stacks would become web pages. And uh, it was bundled with whatever version of HyperCard I eventually pestered my dad to get. And I remember thinking like, this is my website. This stack I've made, I can put all my games online. Everyone's going to come see me. And of course we never did it because we were not going to operate a server out of the home. <laughs> um, <laughs> over dial-up. Yeah, over dial-up, exactly. Uh but I remember thinking, like, this is it. This is this is like the turning point. The internet is catching on, like, you know, in my own personal world. And this is how I'm going to get on the internet because I know HyperCard. I don't need to learn anything else. I have the software that's going to turn HyperCard into web pages. And of course, this is funny in retrospect because, like, we're we're talking. You just mentioned now, like, you moved on to um, hypertext, and like everyone's on the web now. Everyone's doing. Uh, things, whether it's just like having a portfolio on a social media site or like full geo cities or making your own website hand coded in HTML, uh, like the same, the metaphors are still pretty similar to what HyperCard created. Like it's, it's a bunch of screens. They could be cards. They could be web pages that are linked to each other. Yeah. And one of the interesting things about that transition from applications like HyperCard to the web is um, there, there's definitely some things that we can point to that were inspired by these non-networked hypertext applications and HyperCard being one of the leaders in this type of application. And it's interesting that, you know, we're looking back on this with plenty of hindsight. And, uh, also Bill Atkinson has thought about the early history of HyperCard once, once the application had run its course. And there's an article in Wired from 2002 that we'll link to, and a very, very interesting quote from him. And he said, I've realized over time that I missed the mark with HyperCard, which I don't think is true. I think he got it spot on. But he says, I grew up in a box-centric culture at Apple. If I'd grown up in a network-centric culture like Sun, HyperCard might have been the first web browser. My blind spot at Apple prevented me from making HyperCard the first web browser. But I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. 
I think I think we definitely benefited from the fact that HyperCard did exist and that it was considered as as system software. You know, why it it, it doesn't seem like the kind of thing that you would need today, but imagine getting a you know, getting a Macintosh in 1987 and at best you're going to have some dodgy BBS dial-up internet. And so, you know, you've brought your expensive new Macintosh home, maybe bought a couple pieces of additional add-on software for it, maybe go to the Macintosh user group and get some freeware passed around on floppies. But for the most part, you're not going to be adding much new software to your system, and you're not going... And for these very simple applications, you're not going to have tools that we look to online. I was... um, Look, saw an example of a hypercard stack where you could build a unit converter. And, you know, today I need units converted. I ask Google. Uh, I pull up launch, launch bar and I start typing into Google and it immediately gives me the result back. But that's just not possible in a non-networked computing environment. But the fact that you could, you know, if, if you didn't have any way of doing that, if you said, okay, I bought this Macintosh, doesn't have any way of doing this Seems like relatively simple computing task that I need to do over and over again. Guess I'll just get get out the pencil and paper. Then it's not very useful. This is why it was system software is because it was just it was one of the few ways that sitting with a non-networked Mac you could extend what the computer could do. Very much like you know, on the Apple II, all the Apple IIs were were bundled with with Apple Basic, and that wasn't the case on the Macintosh. So HyperTalk was trying to go beyond and fulfill that role of, okay, you're a user who needs to get some, not not that you want to learn how to program, but that you have programming tasks that should be made accessible to you because you're on your own in, in the pre-internet world. Uh, whereas today for something like that, we think, okay, uh, you know, you don't want to program. Well, just go ask the internet. I'm sure someone, someone with more time and resources and knowledge has has taken care of it for you. But uh, the early Macintosh put all of that power and trust and responsibility on on the primary user. Yeah, and while Atkinson may say that he he feels he was prevented uh, from making HyperCard the first web browser. There's no denying the fact that HyperCard inspired a lot of what makes the internet the internet today. Whether it's the concept of of hypertext and hyperlinking to more specific examples like the creator of the JavaScript language, which is on like every website now, has claimed to be inspired by the HyperTalk language. Ooh, sure doesn't look like it. <laughs> I know, I know. Um and the the inventor of the wiki, not necessarily Wikipedia, but the wiki as a concept, uh, originally organized the information in HyperCard stacks. And surely that concept helped inform the concept of wikis. Or even something as simple as the pointer finger in web browsers, the cursor that happens when you mouse over a link and it changes from the arrow cursor to a little pointer. That was the default pointer in HyperCard. Yeah, so there are all these little little hints of HyperCard's legacy still around. But for the bigger picture, is there anything that we see that actually occupies the place of HyperCard where there's this ability to go and 
work through those levels and get all the way up to authoring and scripting and have user-facing customizable software. Yeah, I think it's it's something that people who used HyperCard or the classic Mac back in the day are constantly bemoaning. Like, where is HyperCard for blank? HyperCard for the web, HyperCard for OS X, HyperCard for iOS. There are some software packages or development environments that try to get to part of it, but no one is making literally HyperCard for blank. Yeah, I think the closest thing that still exists is SuperCard, which was came pretty much directly on the heels of HyperCard as it became clear that color was never going to come around. HyperCard 3.0 with color support was was not on the horizon in 1997. Uh, so various competitors started started coming up, and one of them was SuperCard, which was, I believe, cross-platform as well, which was another ambition of of HyperCard that never came to pass and something that, you know, that that's one thing where you can say, okay, well, the, the open web really went beyond there because the open web was cross-platform from day one, whereas HyperCard was always a Mac-only piece of software. We'll obviously put a link to SuperCard in our show notes, but it's worth knowing that their website, supercard.us, has a supercard.us slash HyperCard page where you can go and learn like which of my stacks from the 1990s will open in this modern application. So yeah, it definitely is trying to pick up that mantle of HyperCard for the modern machine. Yeah, and I didn't realize that it was still in active development. I mean, on the on the homepage, it here says, um, I mean, slightly out of date, but it says update to version four point seven point three for Yosemite compatibility. <laughs> Whereas I thought of I thought of SuperCard as just kind of a like. Fly in, try to try to ride the long tail of of HyperCard, get people who who were sad that it didn't have color and thought that they still needed this kind of application for educational uses and so on. And I remember it it not feeling like a very well maintained application in the late '90s. So here that it it's you know almost 20 years later and it it's still around, it's still being worked on with backwards compatibility to HyperCard. That's that's really cool. Yeah, but I, I remember thinking the same thing, like, this isn't quite there yet when it came out, but it's still going. What about on iOS? Um, I, I didn't, there are a couple of apps that will show up if you search for, like, HyperCard for iPad or HyperCard for iOS. I must admit I haven't tried any of them, but there seem to be, like, two front runners, Pencil Case and HyperPad the latter being a pretty clear uh, case of of inspiration. Looks like Pencil Case is cross-platform. L- looking at both of these and their landing pages, and their value proposition is less about being something that can be used for anything. Uh, like HyperCard could be your address book. Hi- HyperCard could be where you make flipbook animations, or HyperCard could be a full programming environment. Both HyperPad and Pencil Case seem to be development environments to easily make, uh, for lack of a better word, apps. Something that you can deploy that people can use. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the shortcomings of um, one other realm that I see as being a possible successor, which is uh, the new Swift Playgrounds that are being supported by Apple in Xcode because it's, it, it, it's similar in the sense that you have strongly visual representations 
of code and things going on live. So it, it's similar in that respect, but the, the visual aspects there are output and you're expected to start from, start from scratch with code or to get something made for you and just kind of go in and tweak variables. And that wasn't really the model with HyperCard where the model was start with the GUI. And then when you start getting good at it and realizing what's making all of this tick under the covers, then you can start writing, you know, writing HyperTalk code just from scratch and get exactly what you want. Um, so yeah. And also the thing there is that, you know, those are, they're operating in Xcode. And so they're only on the Mac. They're not on iOS. And the notion there, like you said, is to deploy something. Like you have to, you have to go through all these extra levels of saying, this is an app that I want to create. I want to either, you know, I want to build it and put it on my own personal device, or I want to build it and deploy it and ship it to the app store where that wasn't the goal of HyperCard. While it had all of these app-like behaviors, remember that stacks were documents. They weren't apps, even though they had functionality, could build their own functionality into them. So it's a very different very different model of how to think of this. And yeah, I do kind of wish that there were something, especially for education, even, even just now, like with iOS 9.3 being released uh, the week that we're recording this, um, Apple is pushing new features for education, for classrooms. And this was a big piece of learning how to use a Mac when we were growing up and learning basic computer skills in school. So it's kind of unfortunate that there's not a similar low stakes graphics first document based kind of application where kids today can go in and pick up those same skills as they will apply for the next generation of computing. Yeah. I think throw us both in with the rest of the people calling for a modern hypercard for blank. Yeah. And absolutely, like go with go with a new language, go with a more modern language. Uh, it doesn't have to be hypertalk. Hypertalk, hypertalk totally has its quirks. It has its charms in how natural it seems at first glance. Because when you look at it, it doesn't look like code; it just looks like text. But when you start thinking about its syntax too long, you realize that it's really, really weird to program in. Yeah, it can get you in some bad habits and bad conventions if this is your first programming language. Get foo, put it into bar. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody ever sees that in their uh, first sample program. Put hello world into message box. Yep, that that's it. That's it. That's that's literally the program. <laughs> I think we can call it there. Yeah, is there anything else that we haven't covered on HyperCard. I mean, the answer is certainly yes, just because it was so wide and open-ended. But we hope that this has given a pretty good overview of why we feel like this was a major, important product in Apple's history, and one that there's no direct analog for today. So we mentioned lots and lots of things during the show. There will be links to all of those on our website, simplebeep.com. And you can always go and check 
all past episodes. We'll, we'll link a couple directly that we mentioned here, but you can see all of our past episodes at simplebeep.com slash episodes. And you can also get in touch with us there. There's a contact form. And one of the things that, you know, we usually just ask for general feedback, but one of the things I think would be cool to ask specifically for, uh, for this episode is I'm sure some people are thinking back to, man, I made that really cool thing in HyperCard. So if there was something that you created in HyperCard that you would like to share with us, man, especially if you still have some way of accessing it, um, but even just a description would be really cool because we're always interested in hearing hearing what kind of different experiences people had with this Mac software. We're not, you know, we had very similar experiences. We were growing up together. Um, so uh, we know that there's a whole world out there of people in different places, different ages. Yeah. Send us your stacks. Or put them on a, on a web server with that... Uh, Live card by Royal Software. Yeah. just <laughs> It'll be easy, I'm sure. Pseudo Apache control start. <laughs> uh, you can also, of course, get in touch with us uh, on Twitter. The show Twitter is at simple underscore beep. And you can find us individually. I am at ecormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. And I'm at bsuto, B-S-U-T-O. Oh, a little uh, programming note. Uh, we have something special coming up for our next episode. It will be somewhat timely if you've been following us on Twitter, which you absolutely should. Uh, you'll have an idea of where we're going with this. Um, so there will be another episode next week uh, off of our regular every two-week schedule. And then uh, I guess what it'll be, episode 37, we'll be back on the regular schedule. So we'll go a gap of one week and then three weeks. So we will be back next week. We'll see you then.